Once again, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And I would just like to read our text again from verses 3 to 8. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, my greatest desire tonight is that Your Son be glorified through the edification of Your people. That they would walk away from here tonight with a different view of affliction. With a different view of trial. That they would be strengthened. That they would know what to expect. That they would know how to stand. And in standing, that they would bring You great glory. Father, help, aid us, bring right thoughts, Lord, to remembrance and open up our eyes and our ears that we might hear Your Word and be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now tonight I want to look at several very important things from this text. And we're going to, we're going to bring them down to four specific ideas that I want you to understand and walk away with, that you would be strengthened by them. First of all, the certainty of affliction. The certainty of affliction in the Christian life. The next thing I want you to understand is the dangers that arise when a Christian is or finds himself in the midst of affliction. Then I want you to see the foundations upon which, upon which we must stand when we see that we're surrounded by affliction. And then lastly, I want you to see the outcome of affliction. What happens? What does affliction reveal in our lives? And what does it do to our lives? Now, first of all, let's look at the certainty of, of affliction. Go to verse 3. He says, So that no one would disturb you by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. The word affliction comes from the Greek word and it refers to literally a, a pressing together, a pressure, a compression in our lives. It can be translated this way. It can be translated as, as difficulty, trouble, trial, oppression. A word that I particularly, particularly like to use is the word straits. When you find yourself in a strait. Now, what does that mean? If you're ever in a cave, are walking through a valley of sheer rock on both sides. And as you go in, 
It doesn't seem that difficult. And then the walls start narrowing on you until they're about to touch each of your shoulders. And then you find that you can't pass because there's not enough room. So you turn sideways. And then as you're turning sideways and going deeper and deeper, you find one wall pressing in on your chest and the next wall pressing in on your back and to the point where you're hemmed in and you can go no further. That's kind of a great description of this word. And most of you, if not all of you, have experienced something like that in your life. It starts out, you think that it's not going to be that great of an affliction. And then little by little, it starts grabbing a hold of you until the point where you almost feel like you're trapped. Like you're trapped. I've known people describe it this way. Brother Paul, I felt as though I was suffocating, that I couldn't breathe, that my heart was going to pound out of my chest. Well... That is affliction. Now, there's something else very important here. The word affliction is in plural. And the idea that I want you to see is that afflictions of every type and kind coming at you from all angles and touching every area of your life. Now, in the Christian life, it is not all affliction. But there is affliction. And sometimes it comes at us softly. And sometimes it comes at us hard. Sometimes it comes to us like spies entering into the land of Canaan. And sometimes it comes like squadrons or battalions coming upon us. Now, if you haven't experienced this in the Christian life, you will. Because the next point of this is that affliction in the Christian life is an absolute certainty. If you look again at verse 3, Paul says that we've been destined for this. Now, we're going to talk about that a little later. But right now, just realize, this is not just one specific isolated moment, but he's speaking a general truth to all Christians. There is a sense that you and I have been destined to suffer. Now, if anyone ever comes to you preaching a Christianity that has no affliction, there are two possibilities. They are very sincere, but they do not know the Scriptures. Are there a charlatan with something to sell? Because it's the testimony of Scripture, of all Scripture, that you will be afflicted. And I want to read some of these Scriptures. Just listen for a moment. First of all, in Matthew 13, 20-21. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is a man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. Now, notice he did not say if he said when. It's not a matter of if it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. It's a matter of when will it happen. James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He doesn't say if, he says when. It's going to happen. And various here is a very unusual word in the Greek that means multicolored, multicolored trials. Trials of every type and kind are going to touch your life. Also, 1 Peter 4.12-13 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Some strange thing from the Greek word sinos which actually 
can be translated, and oftentimes is, foreign. What he's saying is, afflictions are not foreign to the Christian life. They're a part of it. They're what make up the Christian life. John Piper, I've heard him say, you're either coming out of a trial or you're going into a trial. In, in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, trials will come. If you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, persecution will come. Now, I want to talk about the dangers that that come out of affliction are dangers that gather around us, it seems, when we're passing through affliction. First of all, I want you to look at verse 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. The word disturbed. Now, the first point I want to make is this. The believer, when afflictions come, the genuine believer can be shaken. The word disturbed here comes from the Greek word sino. And, and the word has two different meanings and we're going to touch on each one. But for right now, we're going to look at the one specific meaning that has to do with shake or sway backwards and forwards. It can mean to trouble, to agitate, to move. And that when trials come, When afflictions come into our life, it has a tendency to do to us the same thing that an earthquake will do. And what is that? All of a sudden, the land begins to sway back and forth. And as it does, the tops of the buildings begin to sway back and forth. Now, if the swaying lasts long enough, what happens? The very foundations begin to crack. A lot of people don't understand this about earthquakes. That they think the intensity of the earthquake is what topples buildings. And that's not necessarily true. What topples buildings is the duration of the earthquake. The longer it goes on, the more likely the foundation is going to be tore apart. It's the same way in the Christian life. Anyone can endure a trial for a moment. Or a trial for a day. But there are people who have to deal with life long trials. And their foundations would be tore apart if it wasn't for what? The power of the Word. The power of Christ. The power of the Spirit working in us. Now, when afflictions began, they can literally shake the very foundation of the mature Christian. If you're sitting there tonight and you're thinking, this is for the immature. I'm solid. Take heed lest ye fall. Let let me tell you something, brothers. The greatest Christians can be shaken to the very core so that they find themselves doubting the very truths that they once affirmed with no problem at all. And if you think you're beyond that, again, pride cometh before the fall. Don't ever think that. And for the, the person who professes faith in Christ and yet is not genuinely converted, When these types of things come, not only is their foundation tore apart, but they themselves end up turning from the Lord. Now, another great danger that we find in afflictions, and it comes from the same word where he has here disturbed, but this word, and it's very unusual, 
It does mean to shake or to sway. But the word came to mean also to fawn or to flatter or to win someone with smooth words, seductive words. Now, how did it come to have that meaning? You're not going to believe this. A dog wagging his tail. The word was so often used to describe a dog wagging his tail to do what? To gain the affections and the attention and the affections of his master. Now, what does this mean? The Christian can not only be shaken in trials, the Christian can be deceived. And in what way? In what way? By fawning and flattery. By the smooth words of people who would use their smooth words to woo the Christian away from total commitment to Jesus to compromise. You say, well, how does that work? When someone comes up to you and say, look, you taking this stand at work, it's going to cost you your job. Look, I don't think Jesus ever intended you to do something like this. God wouldn't want you to suffer in this way. Now, do you see? In the midst of affliction, what is something that is likely to happen? Someone comes to you. Even, it can even be a well-meaning converted person comes to you and says, look, I'm hurting for you. I think this conviction of yours is unnecessary. I think you need to back off a little. After all, I think you're taking this whole Bible thing just a little too literal. Now let me give you some word, a quote by Wordsworth. Listen to what he says. The devil is more to be feared when he fawns than when he roars. The devil is more to be feared when he comes to you and pretends to be your friend to help you, to keep you from this cruel will of God that's going to hurt you. Let me give you an example. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. Just listen. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. In the midst of affliction, Satan will come to you and try to turn your attention away from God's interests, God's will, God's glory to self-preservation. You've got to think of yourself. I mean, after all, if you don't, who will? Now, a third thing that will happen to believers in the midst of trial, in the midst of affliction, they will be tempted. They will be tempted. Look at, look at verse 5. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Now, when someone is in affliction, a Christian, the devil comes like a, a shark who has smelled blood in the water. He comes like a wolf observing a flock. And he sees in that flock a weak 
and wounded lamb that is straggling behind, and there he comes. Now, just as a side note, this is one of the great reasons why someone should be in a real, visible, local church with real, visible elders. YouTube pastors can't help you at this point. When you're weak, that's when the devil is going to come. And how is he going to come? Tempting. Now, I want you to look at verse 5. He says, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. Literally, for fear that the one who is tempting might have tempted you. What does that tell us? The word tempter actually comes from a present tense participle that indicates continuation of action. Satan is literally called here not the tempter, but the one who is tempting. And that is a characteristic of his life and his ministry. He is constantly, constantly looking to find a way to tempt. Now, I want to say something about the devil here that I think is very, very important. Whenever the devil is mentioned in the Scriptures, it's, or Satan, it's a transliteration of the word. Satan is found in the Hebrew Bible. Satan is found in the New Testament. Devil is found in the New Testament. Devil, Satan, it's a transliteration. And in the transliteration, I'm afraid that we lose most of the meaning and the understanding of the way he works. Now, what do I mean? When we think of, or when the normal person thinks of devil or Satan, they think about somebody who may be red with a tail and a pitchfork, something of a comical type of character. Now, what if we didn't transliterate these names, but we actually translated them, then instead of calling him Satan, we would call him adversary. Instead of calling him devil, we would, we would call him accuser and slanderer. And instead of calling him tempter, we would call him the one who is always tempting. Wouldn't that add a lot more meaning and cause us to lift our guard. No one's going to lift their guard against a little guy in a, in a red suit. But against an adversary, a slanderer, an accuser, and one who is constantly tempting. Now that's something to be worried about. Now how does the devil do it? He is our adversary. Well, how does he fight against us? He slanders both God and men. He accuses both God and men. And He is constantly tempting. Now God, He tries us. Someone said, what's the difference? God tries us in order to strengthen us and approve us. Satan tempts us in order to weaken us and destroy us. Do you see the difference? There is a great difference. Now, just something about the devil that I would like to say. First of all, he's real and he's dangerous. And if you're a Christian, and even though you may rely upon the sovereignty of God and you know that He who began a good work and you will finish it, do not presume upon the sovereignty of God. Know that you have an adversary and that adversary is real and that adversary has not only swallowed up men, he has swallowed up nations. Listen to what Peter says. Be of sober spirit. Boy, there's not a whole lot of that around today, is there? Be of sober spirit. Remember John Snyder a while back every, in, a, in a 
you know, context in which everyone was talking about passion. He said, I think the word of the day is not passion, but should be caution. A lot of people running around with passion, but not many people walking around with caution. He says, be sober. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alerts. Look at that. Be always watching. Always on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I've heard people say, well, he's a roaring lion. It means he's an old lion. He doesn't have teeth. He can't do anything. So he just roars at people. Well, that's cute, but it's not true. He devours people. In His wake is left nothing but spiritual flesh and bones. Carnage. So we ought to be careful. Another thing that I want to point out is Satan's tactic. So many people today have this idea of spiritual warfare as the manifestation of demons or the supernatural or becoming visible and all these sorts of silly things. No! How does the devil work? He lies. That's what he's done from the beginning. He's a murderer. But how is he a murderer? He lies. And the big part of temptation is what? Hath God said? God didn't say. How, if you're a person who's given to melancholy and depression in the midst of affliction, how do you fight it? Not by someone laying their hands on you. And not by quoting Scripture. Did you know that? You hear all these people, when you're in the midst of trial, you need to quote Scripture like Jesus did. You're missing the whole point of Matthew 4. He didn't overcome the devil because he quoted Scripture. He overcame the devil because he obeyed the Scripture he quoted. You see the difference? How we can think the Scripture is just this match. I'm going to quote Scripture at the devil. Go ahead all day long if you want to. He's not afraid of someone who mouths the Scripture. He runs from those who obey the Scripture, who believe the promises of God. Now, I want to look for just a moment at the foundations upon which we are to stand in the midst of affliction. First of all, our foreknowledge, our foreknowledge of the sovereignty and purpose of God. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm not saying that you and I are like God, that into eternity past we existed and we have foreknowledge of all that is to come. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is before the affliction ever comes, you must have gained and applied the knowledge in your own life that God is sovereign and He has a purpose in affliction. Do you see that? You must decide that now before the affliction comes because when it comes, you'll be so bewildered you won't be able to grab a hold of it. Let me, let me probably not many of you hopefully have been in similar circumstances, but there's a, there's a saying that says everybody has a plan until the first punch is thrown. Well, if you've ever been in a fight, I want to tell you that is true. Have you ever been punched square between the eyes? I have. If you haven't made certain decisions prior to that point, you are not going to know what to do. Because it's just all confusion at that point, and you're swinging at everything. It's the same way with trials. You have to settle these issues before you ever enter into affliction. Now, 
What do I mean? Look at verse 3. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Now, why should the Thessalonians not be just totally destroyed, shaken by these afflictions? Why? Because Paul already told them that they were coming. And he also shared with them the purpose. Knowing that it is going to happen is a great means of strengthening. Now, the word destined literally means to lie down or to lie down outstretched. In the passive voice, it means to be laid down, to be placed in a certain place, or to be set up for a certain purpose. And this is what's happened to us. This is what I want you to see. You and I have been destined. We have been placed. We have been set in a specific place for the purpose of affliction. Now, at first when you hear this, you might think, that doesn't sound too good. But now remember, I've already said affliction is coming. Isn't it a strengthening to know that whatever comes to you, whatever comes your way, is by the hand of God. That He has ordained it. Now I want to give you a quote from from the writer. His last name is Best. It's a very good commentary writer. And he says this. Listen closely. This sense of destiny, destiny, when we're in the midst of affliction, this sense of destiny provides greater strength to us than the mere belief that it is a tragic fact of Christian existence that suffering accompanies goodness or that the imitation of Jesus will lead to persecution. He's not saying, look, if you're going to be good in this world, it's a bad world and you're going to suffer. He's not saying that, look, most of the world hates Jesus, so if you seek to imitate Him, they're going to hate you too. That's not what He's saying. He's saying specifically, God Himself has placed you in this world for affliction. And He will use that affliction in your life. Calvin said that affliction, these afflictions are the terms by which we become Christians. It was in the contract when you signed it. That as a Christian in this world, you would suffer. Not out of empty fatalism, but because God had a plan to make you, to change you into something else. Now, why has God determined suffering for His people? Why? Why has He done it? Well, I'm going to give you some reasons from the Scriptures. So just, just listen. Romans 5.3 And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. Now, you've all read that text. But what does it mean? Well, let me explain to you what it means. It's this. Tribulation requires perseverance. It does. It demands perseverance. When tribulation comes, it demands that you hold your ground even though you want to run. Now, perseverance in the midst of a fiery crucible burns off the dross and leaves the gold. So here's, look at it. Here's this tribulation comes against me. And instead of running, 
Instead of thinking self-preservation, instead of thinking, I want my best life now in Christ and by His strength, I hold my ground. And as I hold my ground, what happens? The fires blow over me. And what do they do? They burn away all the dross in my life so that when they pass, what is left? Gold. The character of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question. How does proven character lead to hope? Because he says in the end, it leads to hope. Here's how it leads to hope. When that fire passes by me and I see that God has sustained me and done me good, it gives me much more confidence or hope in God. Number one. Number two, how does it give me hope? It gives me hope with regard to my own salvation. It gives me assurance. Why? I can see these fires have passed across me. God has preserved me. And not only that, I'm more like Christ than when the fires began. Evidence of what? Conversion. Then how else does it give me hope? If God's doing all this, what's my future hold? What is it going to be like? You see that? Now, also, do you see how you can read a text and quote it and cite it and memorize it and everything, but if you don't get it down to understanding it, it really doesn't provide the strength that it could? Now, also, I want us to look for just a moment at 1 Peter 1, 6-7. through In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let me read that last part. Even though tested by fire, your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, as those who want to give glory unto God, and see God as primary in everything, we need to be careful how we look at this text. Because although it does mean that by us resisting the trials through the strength that God gives us, in the final day, God will receive glory and honor and praise. That is there. But not to the exclusion of a more primary truth. At least in this case that Peter is trying to teach us. And that is, brothers, this is amazing. Every trial in which you stand, every temptation in which you stand, every affliction in which you stand, on the great and final day of judgment, that will result to what? Praise, honor, and glory for you. Now, isn't that amazing? Reward, honor, glory for those who stand. Now, I want to put this in real life. Of course you would say this if you, if you were thinking, yes, Brother Paul, you know, or, or Brother Holden or someone was preaching off in a foreign land somewhere and they, they threatened to kill him, but he just put his shoulders back, stood his ground, preached. They beat him. He kept preaching. 
You think it applies to that. Well, it does. But it also applies to this. In the daily trials of our human relationships, when we don't give in to the sin of others, when we don't pay others what they deserve, but we act like Christ, we resist the trial of friction with other people and we decide to be Christ-like instead of reciprocating, what will that do? It will make us more like Christ and it will lead to eternal glory. You see, every moment in your life is important, isn't it? Guys, you're walking down the road and something appears before you on a sign that is not spiritually wholesome and you, no one's watching. No one's watching. And the moment you catch, the, you catch it in your eye, you turn away. That will result in glory, honor, and praise. Do you see how every little thing we do is so important? So important. Oh, this is so encouraging to me. It is to me. Every little thing. Because most of us don't get big things, do we? But every little thing is an extra weight of glory. Another thing that we need to stand upon in a time of suffering is our foreknowledge of suffering. Now again, this is very related to the first point, but I'm simply saying this. Of knowing beforehand that we were called to go through Affliction. Look at verse 4. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Now, look at this. This is amazing. Especially for those of you who are going to disciple, you're going to pastor, you're going to be an elder. An early part of discipleship, an early part of Christian discipleship is what includes teaching new believers that they are going to suffer. Both trial, affliction, persecution, that they are going to suffer. Look at the language here in verse 4. He says, For indeed, when we were with you... Now look, it's an imperfect tense denoting continuous action in past time. He said, we kept on telling you. He didn't just say it one time. He just didn't say, oh, and also, sometimes you're going to suffer. But he kept telling them over and over and over and over. You are going to suffer. Imagine saying things like this during your evangelism. Evangelism today is, I'm going to tell you every wonderful thing Jesus can give you. And then you have people come up on these great crusades and almost every testimony was what? I was a loser. I was a bum. I had nothing. I met Jesus. Now I'm a billionaire. Look how different it would be with the Apostle Paul. Paul, what did Jesus do for you? He ruined my life. I was the foremost among all my countrymen. Now I'm considered the scum of the earth. Worse than a Gentile. Do you see? You need to be very careful of falsely presenting the Gospel. Now, so don't run to the other side either. The Gospel is good news. Very good news. But we need to be honest about discipleship. This was Paul's practice. Listen to Acts 14, 21 through 22. After they had preached the gospel to that city, Derbe, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, 
Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. I think I need to write a book. Have my face up there like this, just smiling. And the title could be, Through Many Tribulations, We Will Enter the Kingdom of God. I'm sure it will be a bestseller. But you see the reality of this. This was also the practice of our Lord. Listen to what He said. These things I have spoken to you so that in Me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. Now, think about the great disservice that is done to new believers when they are not told these things. And I believe this is one of the reasons for the high turnover in churches that are called prosperity churches or that have their prosperity gospel. They have an incredible turnover rate. Why? Because after a year or so, the people start realizing all the things that were promised me are not coming true because they weren't biblical. And all the things that I was told I would no longer have to deal with, I'm still having to deal with even more. Do you see? I want to quote Hebert here. He says this, to leave converts unwarned of the possible adverse personal consequences of their acceptance of the gospel is to do them a serious injustice. Of this, Paul had not been guilty. Now, let me give you an example. A cancer patient goes in to receive chemotherapy. And what happens the moment they begin to receive chemotherapy? Do they get better? They get worse. Do they feel better? They feel worse. And that goes on and on and on and on. I know, I personally had people in my family that went through it and I was there with them. The moment they started chemo, it just kept getting worse. Now, how would the patient feel? How would they be able to stand if the doctor never told them how it works? They would have begun to doubt the doctor and the process. Do you see that? In the same way, when people come to know Christ, we don't need to scare them to death. We don't need to be overly given to these types of things, but we need to be honest, biblical, about what the Christian life truly is. It is glorious, but it is a glorious battle. It is worth it all, but it is costly. Now, number three, what else? In order to, to make it through affliction, we must have a knowledge and application of the truth of the truth of Scripture. Now, as you know, in verse 2, we understand that Timothy was sent by Paul and Silas to go back and strengthen the church with biblical exhortation what does a person need in the midst of trial? God's Word. And not just God's Word, but using God's Word to strengthen them and to exhort them. Oftentimes we will go to people when we find them in distress and all we want to do is console, 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 pity, pity, pity. And yes, that has a part in it. But we are not called just to help people to mope in their suffering. We are called to exhort them to be victorious in their suffering. 
Now, not with some superficial little antidotal message, but with the gospel, with the truth of the scripture, which open up our mouth and not allow people to waller in their flesh. That's what so often happens in Christianity today. I'm not talking about being like the friends of Job and judging them or trying to figure out the reason why they're going through it but to use the Scriptures so that they biblically respond to whatever they're going through. And sometimes, yes, even in the midst of affliction, we're going to have to look at a brother and sister in the eye and say, stop it. Just stop it. You're being fleshly. You need to return to the Word. You need to stand upon the promises. You need to be very careful not to accuse God but to believe Him. Now, I will say this. A lot of wisdom is required. Spiritual wisdom to determine when do you console and when do you exhort. And that can only be known if you're a person who is renewing their mind in the Word of God and mature in the Word of God. If you don't know what to do biblically, don't do anything. Come get someone who does. Because never forget, a knife in the hand of a trained surgeon will save a life. A knife in the hands of an untrained person will rip them to pieces. Be very careful. Very careful. Now, let's go on. I want, since we're, we're drawing to a close and we don't have much time here, I want, to, uh, I want to go back to something here that may be of help with the time that we have, and it's this. I want to look just quickly at the outcome of affliction. What happens when a person is afflicted? First of all, I want us to look in verse 5. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. First of all, what should be our greatest concern when we see someone going through affliction? What was Paul's greatest concern? That they not lose their faith. That they not turn from Christ. Now, I want you to imagine this for a moment. Timothy comes back to Paul. And Paul goes, Timothy, finally, you're here. How, how does it go with them? Paul, you're not going to believe it. They're all out of prison. Y yeah, okay, Timothy, but, but no. H how is it with their faith? You're not going to believe this, Paul. You know the people who were beaten? All their wounds are healing. Timothy, I don't care. How is their faith? Paul, you're not going to believe this. The whole town has apologized. And has even decided to pay money back to the believers for everything they destroyed. And Paul goes, Timothy, I don't care. I only want to know one thing. Are they still believing? Are they still trusting? Are they still walking with Christ? That ought to be a priority for our own life. And it ought to be a priority when we look at those around us that we love. 
When I, when I talk to someone maybe who was a believer in college and somehow I come meet them again and 30 years later, I don't care about their bank accounts. I don't care about their success in the world. I don't care about any of that. I only want to know, are they walking in the truth? And with ourselves. Stop judging your own self by worldly standards. So you went through affliction. So you lost a home. So your car's all broken down. So nothing is going right. So your family thinks you're out of your mind. Don't waller in that. Because the primary thing is only this. You are still believing. You are in Christ. And that's what you need to hold to. Preciously. Sometimes I'm afraid, believers, that we look over things that are so precious. We live in a world where to be a success as a Christian, it means that you do certain things, your church is a certain size, or your ministry, or this, or that. And you've got to understand, those are peripheral. Those really aren't that big a deal. The supernatural thing of your life is that you have been born again, and you are repenting and believing. I don't care when you look in the mirror. I don't care what kind of things you see that aren't pleasing to you. The one thing that you need to ask is, am I believing? Am I trusting? Because it's not through the ministry that you will gain a new heaven and a new earth. It is not through success in preaching that you're going to stand before God spotless. It is through faith. And when you see that you're believing, you need to be happy in the Lord. You need to be thanking the Lord. And when you see other people still believing, even though it seems that they're holding on by a thread, there needs to be joy in your life. That's the important thing. Now, what is revealed? What is revealed through affliction? First of all, a lack of conversion can be revealed through affliction. That as affliction comes upon a person for being somewhat identified with Christ, they decide it just isn't worth it. Or they compromise the Christian message or compromise their Christian life in order to have the best of both worlds. And I want to, well, don't have time to go to this, but just look at the parable of the sower. They appeared to be Christian, thoroughly Christian. But when affliction came, when tribulation came, when trial came, what happened? They became fruitless. They denied the faith. They proved that they were not truly Christian. This is what trials do. But what else do trials do that are more on a positive note? They also reveal who truly is Christian. And I want us to look at this for just a moment. If you'll look at verse 6. But from now, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us longing to see us just as we also long to see you. Through the affliction that they were suffering, they still held true in verse 6 to these things. Now, I want to point out three things here that demonstrate their conversion, that demonstrate that they, they were genuinely converted. First of all, look what he says in verse 6. Good news of your faith. They were still believing. Still believing. 
the evidence that you truly believed in the past and the salvation is that you're still believing today. Another thing we learn from this, even though someone's initial response to the Gospel may be very positive and very encouraging, it is not the final test as to whether or not they're converted. I have seen in my 30 years people who appeared to be converted with an overwhelming sense of God's power. And to go for months, their entire town turned upside down because of the changes in their life only for them to apostatize. Only for them to deny the faith and show that their faith was false from the very beginning. So it's not just that, oh, with joy and, and, and great seeming great power, you believed. The question is, do you continue to believe in spite of the affliction? And that's what's happening with the church in, in Thessalonica. Also, I want you to look. It says not only the good news of your faith, but also of your love. Persevering love for the church. Now, faith and love are two distinct Christian virtues. But in Christianity, they are linked together like two sides of the same coin. And we don't see them as separated in the New Testament. They go together. And one is the proof of the other. How do we know we are believing? Because we are loving the brethren. Let me give you some verses. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. How do we know that there's faith for Christ? Because there's continued love for the brethren. Also, Ephesians 1.15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. There they are again. Colossians 1.4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now, I could give you so many more verses about this. But the evidence of genuine conversion is not just faith, but a continued love for the brethren. And then finally, if we look again in verse 6, there was a persevering relationship with the apostles. Look what he says. You always think kindly of us, longing to see us. They were still identifying. Now think about this. Identifying with the band of men and the doctrine that literally ruined their lives. I have seen so many people come to embrace Christianity and then when trials come, they become embittered against Christianity. They blame Christianity. They blame God. They blame the preacher that brought them the news and they're gone. But here we see something very important. These people had suffered tremendously. But what's happening? They're still holding on to these beaten apostles. These men who are considered the scum of all the earth. All the world hates these men and these Thessalonians even though they had suffered because of the message they received from these men and their identification with these men, they still fought the world of these men. They continued in the teaching of the apostles. And that's one of the great evidences of conversion. Listen to Acts uh, 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
They didn't take the Apostles' message and decide, wow, if we would just tweak it here and tweak it there, the world would be more accepting of us. They didn't walk away when the problem started, but they identified with it completely. Now, to end, there's one final thing that I want to show you that it is revealed whenever we're in the midst of affliction. I wrote it this way. The afflictions of one reveal the genuineness of all. Now, what do I mean by that? Look in verse 7 and 8. For this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. Now, the genuineness of our love as a church and as individuals is determined by two things. One, according to this passage, when our concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ take priority over our concern for ourselves. Do you see how anemic American Christianity is? Even in churches with good theology and supposed really good preachers, when people think that their church duty is they came to church to listen to the message, and they have no sense of community, no sense of serving, no sense of blessing, no sense of helping, they're all consumed with their own life. And yet, here we see Paul. What He's in the midst of his own affliction and distress. This man is a wanted man. He has a death sentence hanging over his head. A sword of Damocles. Everywhere he goes, he's being beaten and mauled and tortured and imprisoned. But, usurping all that concern for self is his concern for the Thessalonians. Also, another thing, the genuineness of our love as individuals and as a church is revealed when our lives become so interwoven that when someone, we discover that one of us is greatly progressing in the faith, we really live. And when we discover that one among us has fallen, Inside we die. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Prior to Timothy coming to talk to Paul with the good news about the Thessalonians, Paul was in a sense, and it's clear in the text, and other commentary writers see the same thing, it was almost as though he was eking out a dreadful doleful existence where he was waiting on pins and needles. It's like everything stopped for him. Life itself until he found out that they were doing well. And then he and Silas exploded with joy, with purpose. I want to end by just quoting Hebert. He says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy felt that they had been given a new lease on life, could again go on living with a sense of fullness of power and satisfaction. Had the Thessalonians apostatized, it would have been a veritable death blow to Paul. This is how much he loved them. Now, you've learned a lot about how you ought to respond to trials. But this last part is most important. And that is, 
a seed in this text that even though we can work very, very hard, harder than most men, we can still be so self-centered. We can still be so myopic on our own lives and our own ministries. But that the true test of love is if it's well, if everything around you is going fine, but it's not well with your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not well with you. Selflessness. I find it very poetic to preach about it. I know that it is impossible to live apart from Jesus Christ and apart from saying no to the flesh. And what I want to encourage you is do not give up your practical responsibilities of your daily life, your work, your care for your family, and all these things that consume a great deal of time, even if you're the most biblical and sacrificial person, do not neglect your family at all. But also begin to realize something more and more. That if we are a church, if we really are a church, then there must be an interrelatedness. There must be a caring. There must be an involvement one with the other. Now I know sometimes people will come here and they just all want to be community and they all just want, you know, they don't want to go home to their families. They just want to build kind of a commune. And we're not like that because that's not biblical. You have responsibilities. But at the same time, you really need to pray for opportunities in this church. Look around you. And not just on Sunday at lunch, but look around and ask God, how can I be like this? How can I know what's going on in the life of other people? How can I bless them, help them, pray for them? That's a part of what it means to be in a church. Alright, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that You would use this for the benefit of Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen.